Dan, first let me just say, I am exceedingly unprepared for this episode. <laughs> Um, I am very pleased it's not just me. <laughs> okay, good. That's yeah. good. Then we're going to have a bit of a faff. I hope you're prepared, audience. <laughs> yeah, let's hope you are. You probably won't be. Oh, we're back. What did we do last week? We talked about Donald Rumsfeld. Ah, oh, that's Such right. a long time ago. Long time. How was your vacation? I had a very nice time away. Excellent. Yeah. Apparently, you got all the Welsh weather here. Yeah, it's it was rain. pretty crummy. Yeah. I did pretty well. It was all right. It was nice. Yeah. You went for some swimming, I believe. Uh, I went for some sea swimming. Lovely. Went for a little bit of walking. Huh. Saw some sheep. Oh, did you? Some, <laughs> I don't know. Welsh people. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a field full of deer on the train on the way. Really? Back. Somebody farming deer. Oh, farming deer? Yeah. For what? Uh, meat, presumably. Ugh. Yeah. Not, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Yeah. Um, saw a field full of lot. They're up to weird. The farmer's in Shropshire. <laughs> What's going on? I, filled, I saw a field full of like. Llamas or something? <laughs> Is Shropshire borderlands? It's in the borderlands, uh, okay. yes. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. All right. Got to go through my dad's hometown on the way back on the oh. train. How's that? You're on the train, I guess. I didn't really recognize the station. <laughs> yeah. And I used to go there all the time, so. Yeah. Anyway, there's no story in this. <laughs> it anyway, nice. it was nice. It was nice. Well, that's good. Been a bit of a faff here. Um, people have been going nuts about the soccer, about the football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I feel like we ought to offer special thanks to um, England and I suppose the the other complicit party, Scotland, in <laughs> playing such a boring game of football two weeks ago. Whenever it was, that it didn't interfere with our podcasting at all. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Whereas yeah. if we did it the other day, yeah, yeah, I mean, we've done it yesterday. I made a point to to be out on a walk. I think for most of the game the other day, and. Um, as soon as I got out of the woods and into like a small village, there was just like a big roar. And I think it was right when England scored. And I was just like, ah, it's coming home. <laughs> it is indeed coming home. I'm a bit, yeah, I'm sort of lamenting. I'm lamenting. I don't know. Like I was expecting to be able to tap into a little bit of that. Were you here in 2018? Yeah, the kind of like it's coming home fever for the World Cup? Uh, I got here in 2018. Mm. So maybe. I mean, it's because we're not allowed to like cram ourselves into pubs in massive throngs and mm. I don't know. It's not quite the same atmosphere. Yeah, I've noticed people like that used to kind of be a bit of a meme, but now like like my middle-aged bosses are saying it very unironically. Like oh, right. it okay. is coming home. And I'm okay. like, all right. Well, <laughs> it's maybe this, home. Why, this is why people have stopped saying it. Because <laughs> it stopped being a meme and yeah. it's just become... It's like, whoa, okay. It's, it's a, coming home. Preserve of the younger boomers. <laughs> From what I understand, it is a large football, a very large soccer ball, the size of a three-story building, I believe. Uh That's what's Uh in my head whenever anybody says, it It. is coming home. The large (laughs) soccer ball is coming home. (laughs) The football. The football (laughs) is coming home. (laughs) You hear me? It's coming home. Um, Well, we can all hope that it comes home. Yeah, I hope everybody makes it home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where football belongs. Yeah, it belongs in England. Yeah. Yeah. Was it invented here? It belongs to the English, yeah. Right. Of course it was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that's entirely true, but I, I'm fairly confident. I, I mean, what what is the joke? The English invented every sport and then are terrible at them. <laughs> right. I don't know enough about English sports entirely to, true. to argue with that. Yeah. Uh, I think they're currently passable <laughs> at cricket. Okay. I like to know that Australia is good. That's kind of like we did it. That's our one good thing we cannot be ashamed of is cricket. Yeah. Well done. Well um, done then. It's the Ashes this summer, I think. Oh, I don't even know what that means. No. <laughs> is that like the World Cup? 
No, it's the like three or four year, every three or four years. Maybe it's every four years in England and then two years. Every two years or so, England and Australia play a test cricket series. And it's called the Ashes. Oh, that's cool. It's just those two countries? Just those two countries. Oh. Yeah. And the winning team gets to have the Ashes, which are like (laughs) three or four inches tall. I mean, who's Ashes? I think I, at some point in time, somebody burnt the the, the stumps for <laughs> the cricket uh, the cricket stumps. For Are you joking? Oh, Is this not. true? Yeah, of course. What? <laughs> and so now there's a little urn, oh, wow. and it contains the ashes of the stumps from a cricket game at some point in time. It... And it's now the tro- <laughs> it's now the trophy for the ashes. Um. That's crazy. That's, I, I don't know if that's cool or not, but it's literal ashes. Yeah, there it is. It is just a very tiny urn. Mm. This, not compensated for anything. <laughs> the term originated in a satirical obituary published in a British newspaper, The oh. Sporting Times, immediately after Australia's 1882 victory at the Oval, its first test win on English soil. The obituary stated that English cricket had died and that the body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. I, okay, I like that. I think that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Right. It's a bit sort of like, yeah. Cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> I think the coolest celebration in sports is the is the Stanley Cup thing for hockey. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not really like a hockey guy, but like it is cool because like everybody gets it for like a couple days or whatever and they just do like weird things with it. Like mm. they like mm. eat cereal out of the cup and then okay. like take it to a strip club or something. I think that's cool. Yeah. I think that's neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're looking mm. for a trophy that's like trying to compensate for something, <laughs> the Stanley Cup is definitely my Yeah, trophy. it is. It also looks like it's upside down. I don't know if that's a very hot take, <laughs> but like it's top heavy and the cup should be at the bottom. Uh-huh. It looks well, that, weird. Yeah. I have heard about this ritual of like every player in the winning team gets a day with the cup and yeah. they all get to choose to do something stupid with yeah, it. Yeah, I think it's cool. And so, like some people are just like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hang out with it and just take it to their house and presumably just sit there. Yeah. It's like, there it is. <laughs> Have a conversation with the Stanley Cup. Yeah, it has Maybe come Maybe watch some baseball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Whoa, Dan, baseball is heating up. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, good sport. That's pretty much the only sport I know a lot about. Hmm. Maybe basketball. Hmm. Maybe we could eventually talk some hmm. basketball, but hmm. I don't know. Kind of. I watched some 2020 cricket when I was away, hmm. um, and I've just decided that basically at this point, all iterations of cricket are a total fudge, and they don't really make any sense. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. When we do our like talking about baseball <laughs> episode, we'll also talk about some cricket. Yeah, and be like, oh, this sport. Yeah. Why can't it be more like rounders? Am I right? Is Rounders the one with the... That's the other bat and ball. Rounders is the one that's analogous to baseball. <clears throat> okay. There you go. Um, you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> baseball, not quite Rounders. <laughs> Cricket, not quite baseball. Not, not remotely like baseball. <laughs> but baseball... Uh, no, you can't, you can't really finish that yeah, one out. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Uh, well, Dan, here we are again. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> As I've noticed, I've been very fond of saying that recently because <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah, said by a man that had to stay on an hour and a half extra after his shift. It's time is a very <laughs> flat circle. Um, today, okay. Today's been a bit of a faff. Um, not not really been super prepared to do this episode. Made very quickly made some notes right before this, but luckily, Dan, we're not talking about 
theory. We're not talking about this high-minded stuff. We're not talking uh, Karl Marx. Uh, we're back. We're doing it. We're talking about the CIA. Yeah. All right. We're back with part two of David Talbot's The Devil's Chessboard. And we are doing kind of part two, although kind of everything that we didn't do last episode up until the end of part two. It's kind of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, last time we did a partial reading of part one and a slightly <laughs> more um, concrete, I suppose, mm. reading of the first half of part two. Mm. So now we're going to finish out, round out part two, which is basically, basically the history of the Dulleses whilst they were actually in involved in... Um, at their peak. At their peak. Mm. At their peak of their power. Mm. <laughs> um, it's a very sad, very sad couple they, of chapters. They, yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah. 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 I would say they get up to some mischief, but it would be <laughs> grossly... Um, <laughs> Grossly belittling of the the, the, the tragic <laughs> those tragic Dulles boys, the <laughs> rascals. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So most of this this part is is a lot more focused on foreign policy. I think it's fair to say it's yeah. about um, uh, the boys and what they got up to um, around the world and not just domestically. Um, and I'm on tour. <laughs> yeah, the Dulles is on tour. She's run away. Um, I was thinking, Dan, um, and I'm going to pretend like I didn't just say this to you about 15 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. I was thinking we start off by kind of re-going over a bit of the C. Wright Mills stuff. Because I'm, I'm interested in this dude, this fella. I don't think he really had it all together. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was informed on a lot of what he wanted to discuss. But I think he brings up some interesting points. And I think more importantly than that... His ideas about power and about social relations and stuff kind of form the backbone of the what ideology of this book is being put forward. So, like, David Talbot's kind of own ideology. Like, he seems to buy into it in a hook, line, and sinker. Um, and, again, this is just C. Wright Mills's idea of the power elite, um, which I'm just going to read a quick paragraph from that just to kind of sum up, again, what C. Wright Mills thought. Um, and I'm going to kind of scoff at certain points. So he says, this is Talbot saying, Mills rejected both the tired Marxist discourse <laughs> that had dominated New York intellectual circles since the 1930s and the quote-unquote romantic pluralism that characterized conventional theories about American politics. According to Mills, power in America was not solely in the hands of Marx's ruling class, those who want the means of production, nor was it a balancing act of competing interests such as big business, organized labor, farmers, and other professional groups. Instead, Mill wrote in his 1956 masterpiece, bold, well, I haven't read it, so maybe, mm. The Power Elite, America was ruled by those who controlled the strategic command posts of society, or one might say the commanding heights. Uh, the big corporations, the machinery of state, and the military establishment. These dominant cliques were drawn together by their deep mutual stake in the quote-unquote uh, permanent war economy that had emerged during the Cold War. So I guess that's kind of like his theory of of power, I guess. Because it's like, I, again, like when you talk about power, that's kind of like, how can you reject Marxism when you're talking about power? Because power kind of seems like a very vaguely determined, like defined thing at certain points. You can kind of make it whatever you want. But I mean, I guess what he's saying is that like the people, the movers and shakers, the people who actually determine the course of society is a smaller group than you think. It's not just the bourgeoisie. It's not just people who own the means of production. It's like the people who have a vested interest in 
these permanent war economies we've talked about, whether that was, you know, obviously like against communism after World War II. And then like we talked about when we talked about Donald Rumsfeld, like the war on terror. Um, he's, I think he's kind of trying to argue that like those are the people who determine things and those are the people who hold power. And I, I just think I just kind of wanted to like open it up, I guess. And like, I don't know, is that entirely, um, uh, uh, can you not also have a Marxist like <laughs> approach? Like, obviously I think it's kind of silly him just kind of like blowing all like economics out the water and just being like, it's these guys, it's the Bushes, it's the Dulleses. Um, but I don't think, I, I, you know, I think he's kind of got a point when he says that like these people certainly control more than you think. These people have a vested interest in the permanent war economy. What do you think? I definitely think that the term power isn't particularly useful. Yeah. <laughs> because all, all political contests are about power, right? You could talk mm -hmm. about class dynamics and talk about who holds who holds what positions of power or who holds what power in in economic terms or in terms of class relations or what have you. So power you could apply to any analysis, I would have thought, or mm. any analysis of any analysis of politics is uh, by its very nature going to focus on a question of power in some yeah. way or other. Yeah, domination, I guess, but like he's not really using that phrase. Like, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I suppose we could work toward. Uh, whenever I say we could, it's, we're probably not going to do it very <laughs> we well. We could. We could <laughs> work toward like passing out a definition of power and working out what it very definitely meant and how it was differentiated from like economic mm. exploitation or domination. I mean, I guess in terms of like a, cost, a class conflict, like uh, a a shifting balance of power is what allows for certain forms of economic domination to take place or not take place, or they determine the um, the field in which those forms mm. of exploitation and domination do take place. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it really is. It's kind of like kind of rejecting all of the theory that gets you to this point and also just like, oh, well, all that's important are these people who determine what war we're having. And it's like, okay, well, what about yeah. the like actual production process? Yeah, 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 what yeah. about why we have that? What about what we would need to change to get rid of these people? Because it is almost like a liberal idea of like these goddamn bad eggs. Yeah. You know, it's not quite that. Yeah, like yeah. he is going kind of structural with it, but. Yeah, yeah now I guess it's worth reminding myself um, to some extent reminding you, to some extent reminding the audience, sort of where we got to in the first reading, mm. the first episode we did on this reading, whereas I was very much inclined to get engrossed in these <laughs> these stories of evil doing um, and invest quite a lot in these particular characters um, and their, their, the eccentricities of their personalities, <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. Um, but you were quite keen to remind me and quite keen to fix the focus of the book on we're talking about an elite section of American political society and the political class who have very explicit economic interests mm. which they are seeking to benefit. And even better than what we learned about in the first section of this book it's even better um, explicated in this in these few chapters where mm. they sort of go through the CIA's, the Eisenhower administration's various clandestine uh, 
political intervention, so we say. One might say coups. <laughs> <laughs> One might say uh, assassinations and political murders. <laughs> um, and what's funny about this book is so how often there is a direct economic uh, interest linking a proper named character in this story to um, any particular regime or act of regime change, shall we say. Mm. But at the same time, they are... It's difficult, and I suppose it's something we should continue to think about, right? You can think about these... You can think about um, class actors, class conflicts, the balance of class power as something in a very kind of like abstracted form mm. but also there are concrete real individuals at, whose actions are uh, determining the outcome of these things yeah um and so i guess from my standpoint from my vantage point it's about sort of like uh passing that out i suppose yeah you i feel like we would probably be cutting ourselves off from a full and good understanding of history if we were to deny uh, a certain degree of agency to some of these individuals kind of thing, which is clearly what they do hold. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's very clear that their actions are determined by a sense of their uh, class position, their class role, their class interests. Mm. Um, that, that interest, that financial and economic interest which is specific to them but also um one which it's hard not to imagine they very explicitly thought of as themselves fulfilling a specific role kind yeah of thing. yeah now there's a degree to which the ideology of these people obscures sort of also obscures for themselves their understanding of what their actions are and i kind of i feel like we came across some of this in uh, our uh, readings about class when we were reading um, Ralph Miliband's book, there was a degree to which, like, it's not like the working class has an immature or incomplete sense of its class consciousness and is working toward class consciousness, but also, like, there is ideology at play in the ruling class. There are uh, class factions. Yeah, um, yeah There absolutely. are degrees of... Um, mistaken or confused or poorly formed uh, consciousness there as well kind of thing mm. so we shouldn't necessarily always think of these people as having a pure consciousness if they're a member of an elite True. or a ruling class whereas like the oppressed of the world mm. uh, don't have a pure consciousness kind of mm. thing um there was certainly there was a point in this book where um it's in a little section um when he's discussing a brief campaign that Alan Dulles made to be a representative in somewhere <laughs> somewhere in New York. A He's failed still, campaign, a, a failed, one might a say. Because, <laughs> yeah, he turned out to be a terrible politician. Got beaten by a goddamn Democrat. It's true, it's true. <laughs> a Democrat running as a Republican. <laughs> exactly. A lame got a beat. Got beaten by an, an anti-New Deal Democrat. <laughs> by an, an Antifa Democrat. <laughs> um, and he's sort of talking about... Uh, democracy and the limits of democracy and the extent to which uh, people can be trusted with democracy. He, Dulles made a very explicit pitch for democracy only works if the right people end up in charge kind of thing. And explicitly, 
the dictator FDR was the wrong person. That was yeah, like yeah, the end yeah. of his pitch. It's just like, oh my God. Um, so I sort of intend that to mean that he had an ideology. I mean, it was a very anti-democratic ideology, but it was almost a kind of like, uh, there is an elite faction of society that ought to rule and the sort yeah. of plebeian masses <laughs> are not fit to decide who that should be. Or if they are going to decide who that should be, it should be in within certain bounds kind of thing. Mm. Um, mm. This guy was not a fan of presidents, I've noticed. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, no, no, no. too specifically, but... yeah. <laughs> Real quick on that point, did you come across the the only reason I got us to read this book? Speaking of Ralph Miliband. He just got mentioned, doesn't he? got he? mentioned. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like jumped out of my socks when I saw that it circled several times in highlighter on my, uh, on my PDF. He's just name dropped as being like, a lot of people in America didn't really like C. Wright Mills because they were like, who's this crazy lefty? But like, for some reason, David Talbot makes a point to say, but in England, Ralph Miliband liked him. Yeah, <laughs> and E.P. Like, Thompson. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's in a section where they're discussing uh, the various uh, institutions, media institutions, intellectual institutions, artists and cultural mm. producers who received uh, CIA money. Yep. Um, and, yeah, well, some of those people were not Ralph Miliband and <laughs> E.P. Thompson. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think I, you're you're absolutely right, and it's you do just kind of have to balance this idea in your head of like agency and um, I suppose kind of structuralism on the other, on the other end. But I, I think the reason that I'm really interested in just kind of wanting to hear a little bit more from this Mills fellow is because maybe on just like a game theory level, like his ideas seem like they could be useful at a certain extent, if not, if not in like a theoretical way, because it's like, yeah, okay, the people, like Cheney's a bad guy, okay? Like a dog with a microphone could tell you that. But like, I'm just going to read another another couple sentences where he kind of takes this to, to its logical conclusion, because he basically says that like, the crucial task of unifying the power elite, according to Mills, fell to a special subset of the corporate hierarchy, meaning top Wall Street lawyers and investment bankers. These people were the in-between types who shuffled smoothly between the Manhattan corporate suites and the Washington command posts. Little is known to the general public. These skilled executives of power, executors of power, constituted in Mills' own words, America's invisible elite. They were the people who forged the consensus on the key decisions of national significance and who made certain that these decisions were properly implemented. I mean, that's basically just like John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, Prescott Bush, like people like that. Um, and, it, you know, it's the Council on Foreign Relations, basically. Like, I don't know the significance of the Council on Foreign Relations now, but like it certainly was like 20 years ago. Like they were the people being like, oh, let's do this. Iraq, uh, maybe they do, maybe they don't have these weapons, but let's go in and get some stuff. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that, like, it is, it's interesting, I think. Maybe it's just my point. Maybe not entirely correct, his his ideas on power, whatever that might be. But um, when taken to kind of that, like, uh, conclusion of, like, well, who are the people actually deciding what wars we fight and thus what gets funding domestically and this whole web of, you know, just, like, money, crap, permanent war economy. Um, it's interesting. And I suppose it'd be better maybe served if it was like an actual study of who these people were as opposed to just being like, whoa, dude, it's these dudes in the shadows. But like, yeah, it's interesting. Got me to listen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just remembered, I don't know whether this is, um, I don't know, a, a, an aside or it's, whether it's misleading to the point, I suppose. <laughs> but there's a little bit in this when they're talking about um, 
toward the end of the, this section when they're talking about uh, Patrice Lumumba yeah. in the Congo. Mm. And um, not to go into that story, obviously we'll get into it. Uh, we kind of know what happens. Maybe we don't want to get into it in too great detail. We'll just get sad. Um, but there is a set, there's a point in which um, the way that um, people in the Dulles circles, people in the Eisenhower administration speak about Lumumba. And I think some of these are the, the other sort of like some of the other key um sort of nationalist leaders that we also come across in the other sections of this book who also get knocked off in very <laughs> similar uh, looking and sounding CIA coups. Jack made a, Jack made a, when he was describing Uh-oh. the section to me, he made a, a point which was um, uh, apposite, I suppose, when he said that um, basically it's just the same story over and over again <laughs> yeah. where you change the name of the country and you change the name of the nationalist leader who has mm. won the first democratic election in that country. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, there's a thing where they're talking about Lumumba, where this this is this is um, uh, the Dulleses effectively people in the Dulles circles talking about Lumumba, like it's just him who has corrupted his people, you know, like yeah. he's the smooth talker, he's the leader who has come and put all these ideas in these sort of they they're, they're almost applying their same understanding of like American democracy to. Um, democracy in these these fledgling mm. democracies i suppose yeah. <laughs> um and suggesting it's nothing to do with like there's there's no reason why it's not like it's not like the congo has some brutal history of exploitation mm. under under its colonial ruler which mm. uh the population are <laughs> reacting against by being Voting. attracted to what this person is saying to them right it's not like mm. there's any sort of social basis there's not like there's any material consciousness there's not like there's any sort of like political economy at play <laughs> it's just patrice lumumba has yeah. has gone and corrupted the, the naive minds of these people in africa and we're just gonna have to get rid of him yeah which is kind of like the same same thing in reverse right they're kind of applying the same kind of say applying the same kind of uh great man figure of mm, concept of history sure. to their enemies in a lot of ways. Yeah. I wonder to what extent they, they believe that because like I doubt Dulles believe that for a second. Uh-huh. Um, and I think to do what he did, he would have had to have strategized and known that, okay, well, it's not just this guy, but if we do get rid of him, then things will change because we'll be able to put someone else in power and we'll be able to kind of control him and blah, 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 blah. Sure. But like, that's obviously what they told the American people. That's what that fucking Washington post and the New York times told everybody. Um, but it's like, you know, there's another point in this where they're talking about one of the other people that they kill, whether it was like Mosadeg or might've been Arbenz, somebody like that might've been Mosadeg, but they're basically saying like, there was a board meeting of all the top brass of the CIA and this idea was put forward like, okay, we're going to oust, uh, uh, Mossadegh and then we're going to put, uh, the Shah back in power and we're going to do it really violently. And some guy who was in that meeting made a point of being like, wow, I think if like half the people who were there felt comfortable of raising their hand and talking, they would have been like, we can't do this. That's insane. But like they did do it. So what are you going to do? Anyway, my point is like, maybe this is kind of where the only thing valuable in the mills where it's like, there is an elite of people who like don't believe the stuff that they say. And then there's like the people directly underneath it who have to believe it to be able to go to sleep at night. And then there's everybody else who just believes it because that's what we're told. And yeah, it's in the newspaper. Jeff Bezos' newspaper told me that, so how could it be wrong? (laughs) 
Um, all right. Well, oh Christ, should we get into the first very sad story, which is about uh, Mosadegh? And this is kind of the first time, I suppose, that they they did this. And I think maybe let's just frame this by like, we'll get into who Mosadegh was and stuff, but like, democratically elected, just like not a communist at all. In fact, had a lot of problems with the Communist Party. Um, so like, n didn't need to be an enemy of the United States. But um, when the American, like, uh, I forget if it was a CIA guy or just some State Department freak was talking about Mosadegh, they tried to belittle him so much in the way that they talked about him. And this was like recalling years later, talking about what he was like. And they said something like, oh, he sat with his legs crossed when he was on a chair, just like a little boy. And I thought that was so telling. It's just like, you sicko. <laughs> like trying to talk about this guy like he was just like, look at him from the third world. Uh, how cute. Oh, shucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, also like a rabid communist and the greatest threat <laughs> to American democracy that has ever existed. Kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right, where do we start? With if there the is a piece of ideology they definitely did believe, uh, I, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they don't. I don't know. Uh, I was going to suggest it's this kind of like rabid anti-communism that seems to be at the base of yeah, like the 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 ideology of at least John Foster Dulles, but also Alan Dulles as well. Obviously, I was just talking about this with my dad about whether or not these people actually believe that. Because he was saying, like, well, would these people's lives change if communism came? And I was like, well, yeah, like 150%. Like, if these people would probably be shot. But, like, <laughs> if they weren't shot, then, like, yes, there's no point in profit for production. So, you know, there wouldn't be private property. These people wouldn't need to go and, like, coup Mosadeg. But, like, um, I think I, the way where I come down on it is, like, people like Dulles, the Dulleses, like, I think that they kind of knew what communism meant and that if it were to spread, even if it was the Soviet model, um, yeah, their way of life would be over 150,000%. Now, I think someone like McCarthy fully drank the Kool-Aid as like, it's the biggest threat ever, baby. Let's have another drink because the communist monster is coming. And it's like, again, where do you draw that line of like, who believes the crap that they're peddling? I'm not, I, I don't know. And I guess there's mm -hmm. no real way to tell. I mean, maybe that isn't the question. Yeah. The question isn't, do they believe what they say? I guess it's yeah. what they say and what do they do? Yeah. Do what, it, uh, what I say, not what I, mm. what I do, what, mm. not what I say or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah. And that we, this book does get much closer to their actual thinking on these questions. Mm. And most often it's, um, we are or we are very closely connected to the lawyers who represent the companies yeah. who are looking like they're going to get nationalized. And in many cases, these... we used to be those lawyers. Oh, we used to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in the case of Mossadegh, like, um, Alan Dulles had been, before he was CIA director or even part of the CIA, he had been negotiating a big sort of like uh, merger of a load of conglomerates who were going to go into Iran and fix all the infrastructure and mm. extract... Um, uh, or receive huge payment, very profitable payment from it. And he was negotiating this very profitable uh, deal, mm. which fell through when Mossadegh came to power. Yeah. And he was like, well, this is absurd. We're not going to pay <laughs> uh, these American chumps to sort of like short sellers all of this, yeah. all of these roads and stuff. I don't know. We Crappy roads. Ourselves, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I think it was basically that was that, that was the crux of Alan Dulles' grudge against Mossadegh, yeah. which... 
you cost me money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to orchestrate a coup in your country. Yeah, I think that was billed as the biggest overseas development project of all time, which is like, whoa, that's a disgusting phrase. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it was. So, yeah, there there was the Shah who was in power and the Mossadegh like replaced him. Um as kind of trying to be like, again, a guy who was like, oh, we're not trying to be Soviets. We're not trying to be American people. We're just kind of trying to like bring Iran or Persia or whatever, like back up to where it was. We're just trying to make good things happen. But it was this overseas development project and it was nationalizing uh, what would go on to become BP. Yes. Um, yeah. Like Anglo-Arabian oil. Yeah. Or Anglo-Iranian oil, whichever one it was. Yeah. 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 yeah let's not forget the Brits are incredibly <laughs> complicit in this as well. <laughs> Yeah. Like Britain was the colonial power in the region. Like, mm. um, and so many, like, they were extracting huge profits mm. uh, from owning these oil fields, kind of thing. The relationship between uh, the Gulf producing, the Gulf, Gulf oil producing states and Britain was one of gross exploitation and mm. extraction of resources, just like uh, all yeah. colonial relationships are. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Again, the Shah would, like, have the boys over, like, the Brits and the Americans over and be like, I'm not planning on nationalizing anything. Don't worry about it. Let's get drunk. Let's all just hang out. Please pour money into my country. Um, <laughs> into my office, overseas bank account. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it was those two things uh, combined. I mean, pissed off a lot of very powerful people with the nationalization of oil and then perhaps pissed off specifically the wrong people who could actually do something about it in Alan Dulles and his crony effing Sullivan and Cromwell friends um, to the point that they were actually able to like go in and kill him. And it, it's really interesting the way that they actually did it because like the two day, I guess who I know nothing about who were the communist party of Iran were like um, Mosaddegh, my man. You, you can't be out here trying to talk with the Americans. Like, they're going to screw you over. And he was like, come on, you crazy radicals. It'll be okay. I just want everyone to be happy. <laughs> this is going to become a familiar story. <laughs> it is. And the communists were like, please don't do that. <laughs> we know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and it was interesting the, like, moment-by-moment moment way that this all f worked out because, like, there were riots in which the two-day was part of basically being like, Mosaddegh, what are you doing? You're going to get us all killed. This is horrible. And then kind of like this American consultant guy came in and was like, Mosaddegh, just clear the streets. Don't worry about it. If you clear the streets, you'll be seen as a really strong guy and everything will be all right. All these dang commies will go back to where they came Restore from. Restore law and order. Exactly, yeah. It'll all be fine, they said. <laughs> It'll all Not be like fine. like we have a paramilitary force waiting <laughs> in the wings to sweep in and sow yeah. even more chaos in the streets. Don't look out the window behind you. Those aren't Sherman tanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, as soon as the streets are cleared, exactly as Dan is saying, American-backed um, forces came in and just started shelling the shit out of his palace until he came out. And he's like, all right, I give up. At this point, Dulles had literally been meeting with the Shah in like Italy or something and was like, the people want you back. Get on your plane and go back. And the Shah was like, I mean, I literally just came from there and they trust me. They don't, don't want, want me, me back. <laughs> and he's like, don't worry about yeah, it. This is a different kind of riot. I know it <laughs> yeah. looks bad. I know the pictures look bad, but trust me, it's okay. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> I would really like to know, like, just the just for a good story, the process that those Sherman tanks, like the route that those Sherman tanks how had they to take end to up there get outside there. Of the, yeah. Because yeah. like now, I don't know, just fly a plane over and drop them. But it's like, how did those tanks get there? Probably on a boat of some kind. But like, must have been a crazy story. Anyway, that all ends with the Shah getting into power. Long story short, um, everybody to the left of him is 
either put to death, arrested, or forced into exile. And by then, the only real resistance to the Shah's power uh, was like an Islamist faction. And um, they're the people who are eventually able to successfully get rid of the Shah and give us the end that we have now, that we're all like, how did this happen? These people, they've got these Islamists in power. Who did that? Yeah. <laughs> in Saudi Arabia and Middle Eastern country here, where America or some other force knocked off the Communist Party and therefore... <laughs> The only people in the power vacuum were the Islamists. Exactly. How did this happen? <laughs> wow. Who put Saddam Hussein into power? <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's the first dis- depressing. Um, yeah. We should say, yeah, what Mossadegh ends up being forced into exile, I think. I think he's at the they, rest of his days in, in his village, not allowed to leave. Yeah. And they in refused Iran. to bury him with his family or something. He wanted, yeah. Something, and yeah. all the people who died for him in the riots and yeah, yeah, looking yeah. after him, they're like, no. And they just buried him under his yeah, house. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeesh. You hate to hear that. Um, I did think right after that, there was a very interesting bit that I don't know why Talbot put it in here, but he talks about when Khrushchev came to go talk to Eisenhower. And I think it must, it must have been at like Geneva or something. Um, and Khrushchev would like, when he met Eisenhower, was like, oh, this guy's kind of friendly. But then he started to notice that like this very decayed looking a uh, skeleton-esque Some man. corpse-like man is in the background <laughs> yeah. writing notes and passing them. Yeah. <laughs> was like, from New England, was like, whenever he Probably was nice to, to Khrushchev, he definitely went to Yale. Whenever he was nice to Khrushchev, Khrushchev the skeleton-esque man who is um, uh, John Foster, John Foster Dulles, uh, uh, would take him aside and be like, Oh, what the? You need to be strong, dude. You need to be like, don't be nice to Khrushchev. Be mean to him. And then Eisenhower would come back and be like, oh, you suck, Khrushchev. And Khrushchev would be like, all right. But yes, like famously, uh, there's an excellent quote where I'm just going to read it. He said, This is Khrushchev talking. I watched Dulles making notes with a pencil, tearing them out of a pad, folding them up, and sliding them into Eisenhower's hands. Eisenhower would pick up these sheets of paper, unfold them, and read them before making a decision on any matter that came up. He followed this routine conscientiously, like a dutiful schoolboy taking lead from his teacher. It was difficult to imagine how a chief of state could allow himself to lose face like that in front of delegates from other countries. It certainly appeared that Eisenhower was letting Dulles do his thinking for him. Eisenhower, not a Sigma. (laughs) I think it's safe to say. You just reminded me, uh, just wheeling back a little bit, there's another uh, Foster Dulles, Eisenhower anecdote, which has filled me with such revulsion that I probably need to say it now. When events in Iran are being reported in the White House, when the the briefing is being given to Eisenhower, there's an account from somebody else who was in the room who Mm. uh, glanced over at John Foster Dulles and initially interpreted him as being like, really disinterested and having like fallen asleep or something mm. and then he realized that he was just lying back in his chair oh, arms yeah. closed eyes shut and then what he says was and purring like a cat what a just... sicko <laughs> just like wow he just perpetrated a coup in a country <laughs> lots of people have died and there's john foster dulles just being like yeah, money money like, money yeah. <laughs> what a sicko but yeah that like that chapter on um the sort of white house politics and the the internal to the White House um, foreign policy politics, mm. as it's described, was really quite shocking to me. Mm. I was just a bit like, how the hell did the human race ever get through the 50s? Yeah, literally, dude. Like, no because, kidding. Because, like, and, the, and also that sort of that dynamic between, like, um, the 
the sort of hawkish and, and rabidly anti-communist, but also just like generically hawkish and also like um, what's usually what they usually describe as the nuclear brinksmanship of that yeah. period, which was all emanating from John Foster Dulles. Yeah. And if there'd been other... I mean, this isn't like a... Oh, if, if history had just been slightly different, if these figures hadn't been there, like obviously there are material reasons why these things were going on. But there's certainly a degree to which like Eisenhower was like to play the kind of like strongman warmonger, but who mm. also had this kind of like pacifist streak and sort of had a degree of revulsion toward war and didn't mm. really want to like be known for like well instigating world war three <laughs> yeah. i get it i get that john sosadolis on the other hand seemed kind of keen yeah. on starting world war three yeah like he was so key, like he desperately wanted to have it out with the the soviets he thought they were coming and seemed to be pushing for it every turn there's a point in which he offers i think it's two nuclear warheads to the french <laughs> For them to Bad drop idea. in Vietnam. I think it was just Bad after idea. their defeat at the MBM Fu in like exactly. 54 or something. He was yeah. like, have a few nukes. <laughs> drop it on the Vietnamese. What could possibly go wrong? Like he was like, they they, they seriously wanted to have like... Well, there was this period where like they, they hadn't really settled into the mutually assured destruction aspect of mm. um, the sort of like Cold War that would become the norm for the next 30 years or what have you. Mostly because... They knew at that point that America was so much more advanced yeah. in its development of nuclear weapons than the Soviet Union was. And there were certain elements inside the White House who were just keen to push that advantage. Mm. There was another instance where they they were in some kind of minor sort of like border scuffle with China, I think, over some islands in the South China Sea. Like um, that, that region of the world is never like threatened to plunge us into any wars. Worth it. Um but I think, yeah, Foster Dulles was also keen. Yeah, we'll just drop some nukes yeah. on it. They'll be fine. What could go wrong? It, it, it's baffling how out of touch these people were for being the, like, people who determined a lot of the course of the 21st century, 20th century. Just so out of touch. Yeah. Just bombed them. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah, yeah. LeMay and all these people. Effing Kennedy. We'll get into this in a bit. But it's like, okay, rule number one, if you're, like, even nominally progressive or just, like, anything left of center and you come into anything that resembles power, get rid of everybody. Mm -hmm. Don't don't be like, well, I'd like to have Curtis LeMay on my staff and we'll keep this Dulles fella on for a bit. It's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis LeMay only got one reference, I think, in the section we've just read. Um, and I'm, a glowing I'm, one, I'm, I'm sure. excited, but also, like, horrified to see how his story unfolds. For, kinda, for kinda people doesn't. who don't recall, like, he was quite central in the episode that we... The first episode that we did um, of our two-part mm. documentary series <laughs> watching episodes um, on... Uh, I've forgotten his name. McNamara? On Robert McNamara. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Curtis LeMay instrumental in the firebombing of Tokyo during the oh, Second yeah. World War. Yeah. And every other Japanese city. Mm. So funny. Mm. Yeah, shit. Mm. Not a good guy. What did you make of the bit when Alan Dulles was explaining how assassination works? I thought that was one of the most fascinating bits of the entire book. It's just like a couple throwaway sentences, but someone at a dinner party is like, can't you just effing kill Nasser in Egypt, dude? Like, come on. And Dulles explains how yeah, it very works scientifically very scientific and i'm like so fascinated by this he says you uh the guy's like can't you find an assassin and he says well first you need to find a fanatic a man who'd be willing to kill himself if he were caught and he wouldn't he couldn't be an outsider he'd have to be an arab it would be very difficult to find just the right man i don't know i think that's so interesting to see like how they actually do this shit it's like 
I don't know. It's like when you, let's just say you were part of a government that wanted to instigate some domestic right-wing violence. You maybe go on a website called 4chan and you find some crazy people who are like, damn, I would like to do some crazy right-wing violence. And then you go, that's a good idea, man. Mm -hmm. Maybe you should do it here. I'm part of this right-wing thing. You should do it there. That's exactly what, it's fascinating. It's yeah, brutal yeah, yeah. and freaky, yeah, yeah, but yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, No good. Yeah, there, I mean, there's like, like, there's two models for what an intelligence, or, well, there's probably loads, but like in this book, kind mm -hmm. of like two models. There is the one which um, Truman was very keen to have the CIA become, which was just intelligence gathering and feeding information to decision makers, mm. which is the CIA that they did not get. Yeah. And instead they got the CIA in the uh, Alan Dulles model, which was mm. incredibly clandestine and interventionist without any... Um, mm particularly strong oversight. There are certain periods in the 50s where they have all these commissions to look into the CIA. And there's like, but who was on these commissions? Oh, it's this person who yeah. used to work at the CIA. Oh, and it was this Gerald person Ford. Who, this, person who, <laughs> <laughs> this person who used to work at Sullivan and Cromwell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, they're usually the, the connections, right? Like, yeah. it's either Yale or Sullivan and Cromwell. <laughs> is, is Sullivan and Cromwell still around? If it is, whoa, I don't like that at all. Um, uh, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah. But yeah. Assassinations. Assassinations. Speaking of assassinations, we get our first mention of a fella who goes by Howard Hunt in the next bit. And that bit is uh, the discussion of Guatemala. Guatemala is a little interesting because, for one thing, it's apparently the thing that Dulles was most proud of, um, other than, I suppose, Iran. Um, and it's really interesting because they didn't have to go in, at least not right away, and kill the nominally progressive, as Talbot says, JFK of Guatemala. It's a guy named Jacobo Arbenz. Um, it's all, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny how they did story. it. And the way he starts it is with, like, with most of these stories, he starts at the end and then, yeah. and then gives you some of the information about the middle and early periods of the story. Mm. And the end for Arbenz is... It's long freaky. and slow and very sad. And then his eventual death is like... It's, it's yeah, like, that, that's when you're like... I, that, well, this is what I wanted to say when you were just mentioned assassinations, right? Like, uh. there is, I feel like there is good grounds to always be like, was the CIA involved? Oh, yeah. Like, Especially <laughs> in this period. If anything happens, you're just like, he yeah, drowned like, in his bath? It's always plausible. <laughs> it is. It's always plausible. It is. Yeah. He either burnt to death in a scalding hot bath or drowned <laughs> in a scalding hot bath. Listen, his bath was too hot. He slipped and got in, and then he stayed in. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Jacobo Arbenz, as we say, Guatemala at this period, um, recovering from a state of basically slavery by um, specifically one company, although there were, there were a couple. Um, the United a Fruit banana company. colony, doesn't he? As yeah. opposed to a banana republic. Exactly, <laughs> a banana, like almost a literal, literal banana, banana colony. colony. Yeah. This, uh, United, the United Fruit Company, or corporation, whatever it is, Long story short, needed a place to grow fruit to sell to a nice suburbanite Americans. Um, and it had to be somewhere in the quote-unquote developing world because it's just climate. That's just what you need to grow bananas and stuff. I find it really hard to imagine an evil fruit company. <laughs> wow, <laughs> well, but after this, I don't think I can imagine a If you're struggling in the audience, let, let, let Jack's going to lay it down for you. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I, went, I went to Guatemala. I've been there a couple times, and I went there when I was like 15, Um and I remember really vividly seeing these old silos that were just like, kind of like vines were taking them over and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. I wonder what those were. Because it was in the middle of basically like rural Guatemala. 
And someone eventually told me it was like, these are old United Fruit Company things and blah, 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 blah. And it's just, it's, it, I don't know. This one's such a bummer to talk about because like Guatemala is such a killer place. It's just like one of the best places in the world in terms of just like sheer beauty and the like culture of like, like the history and the like, you can just, it's just baffling how cool this place is. It's on the Caribbean. On the other side, it's got the Pacific. There's a big lake in the middle. It's got... It's got everything, baby. It just rocks. But for a long time, it was basically, as I said, held in a a state of semi-slavery by the United Fruit Company specifically. And these were people who basically just went in, um, paid people as little as possible when they were paying them to grow bananas. When they weren't, they basically just... um, I hesitate to even say indentured servitude because they basically just used a lot of people as slaves. Like there was a slave class basically in Guatemala to grow effing bananas for people in like Orange County to eat. Um... And, and really importantly, the United Fruit Company went in there and they um, built up the infrastructure a lot. And so when Arbenz came around and had his big land reform bill, which was basically like, okay, we're going to take all of this land that's being really mismanaged. And we're going to just give it to people to farm themselves so we can make our economy better, make people's lives better, et cetera, et cetera. The United Fruit Company, when they were leaving because they had to, just ripped up all the infrastructure that they made. They ripped up all the roads. They ripped up all the railroads. They ripped up like the ports and everything just to say, F you, we're leaving. Taking that ball and going home. <laughs> yeah, literally being like, well, grow bananas somewhere else. Um, anyway... This is this disgusts me so much. In this book, they talk about the different people around Dulles who had shares in United Fruit Company or who just straight up worked for it. And it's like the people he worked with at the CIA had a lot of interest in it, were either on the board or like new people on the board or somehow making money from it, down to like his secretary, like her husband worked at the United Fruit Company. So this was a point when he was like, listen, we got to coup this guy, Arbenz. Um, And the way they do it is like, as I said, it would be funny if it wasn't so, like, mm-hmm, horrible mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for this country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, like, guess which law firm represented the United Fruit <laughs> Company and guess which uh, lawyers in particular <laughs> represented the United Fruit Company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sullivan Cromwell, baby, our favorite. Um, anyway, orchestrated in part by Howard Hunt. Wait a minute, Dan. That can't be the same Howard Hunt who is the Watergate burglar it couldn't have been anyway we'll get we'll, we'll keep an eye on this howard yeah, hunt yeah, fellow yeah. he's one to watch he's, he's one to watch because i feel like something might have happened in between watergate and uh guatemala uh, 1954 was <laughs> <laughs> yeah did he ever go to texas at any point i don't know anyway moving on um the way that they do this isn't by just straight up killing Arbenz and his family they do what they tried to do in cuba which is like put forward a lot of misinformation on radio waves and being <laughs> they would just say shit like on radio waves be like the chicken is leaving the roost and, and everybody in guatemala would be like holy shit the cia is coming we gotta run that's, there's a simpsons joke about that i think um but uh anyway that's what happened and then they make it known that a small group of people is coming to kill Arbenz and to take over power and to coup him basically and Arbenz is just like i'm getting the f out of here which understandable i probably have done the same yeah. several months before if i was him um, and it turns out it was only a couple of people, but despite that, um, they were able to, uh, put, what's his name? Um, Carlos Castillo Armas. Is that him? Uh, I think, yeah, Carlos Castillo Armas. Uh, he, he gets into power and he basically just does genocide for the next forever because anybody who was even remotely, like even took land from the government, killed them, wipe out, uh, villages. When I went to Guatemala, people would tell me just about, I was like 15. I was like, whoa, yeah, people yeah, would yeah. tell me about just like whole villages were just killed. 
especially the indigenous people who lived there, just wiped out just for being indigenous. Just why not? These people might have been lefties, killed them all. And that's kind of been Guatemala to this day. I mean, its history now is kind of defined by like being on the path of uh, the drug trade coming from South America to North America. But um, yeah, this certainly didn't help Guatemala develop killing this like <laughs> nominally progressive guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah just quite like... Well, it's another story of like a noble, well-meaning kind of like yeah. almost class traitor who's oh, we're just going to do some simple land reform. When has anybody ever wrong? gotten pissed off about land, land reform? Land reform, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it leads us to one of the best quotes ever, which is Shea was in Guatemala, in Guatemala City when this was happening. Um, and we get my favorite quote from the entire book, which is, Shay writing to his mom as he was about to basically get on the yacht to go to Cuba, which is just like, fuck, yeah, dude. He says, I am not Christ or a philanthropist, old lady, which is like, I don't know why I called his mom old lady. I think that's kind of funny. I fight for things I believe in with all the weapons at my disposal, and I try to leave the other man dead so that I don't get nailed to a cross. And that's where you get the battle cry, Cuba will not be another Guatemala. And it's just like, oh, yeah, baby. Pretty badass. Although it's also pretty sad because, like, Arbenz went to Cuba to, like, seek asylum and he wanted to teach at a Cuban university. But, like, all the commies were like, mm, I mean, you're just some lib. We don't want you teaching at our universities. But they let him stay. But it's also really funny because he got up and gave a speech with um, uh, Castro at one point and Castro lets him talk. And then he's like, hell yeah, this guy's our comrade. He's great. Uh, and then he gets everybody in the crowd to chant, like, Cuba's not Guatemala. <laughs> and, and Arbenz is just like... Oh boy! Yeah, <laughs> that was in. kind of one of the, one of the saddest parts of the <laughs> the post Guatemalan president's mm. life, presidential life of uh, Jacobo Arbenz. Mm. His time in Cuba was just like not particularly welcome, but wasn't particularly welcome anywhere. Kind of <laughs> yeah, I tried know. to live in Paris, wasn't allowed to do anything. Was yeah. basically barred from teaching or having any particularly important roles. And yeah, tried to live beyond the Iron Curtain and didn't go on particularly well there. Let that be a lesson if you're a lib. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody wants you. <laughs> Literally. Nobody wants you. Not even the nominal liberal democracies want you. Mm. And eventually the CIA is going to get far enough down its hit list that it's going to come for you. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. Any, anything else to say in Guatemala? I think there was a fellow named Frank Sturgis as well who was involved who might uh -huh, become important uh -huh. later. Um yeah, anything else in Guatemala? Just just terribly just, sad. Yeah. It's just terribly sad. And it's, yeah, it's the same thing over and over again, isn't it? Like, yeah. how do we um, use our local assets? How do we funnel resources? How do we get arms? How do we find the most brutal person who would be our would-be dictator that would replace our nice social democratic, <laughs> democratically elected uh, Pro land reform, nationalist kind of thing, pro nationalization, uh, tribute of the people, kind of populist. Yeah. Um, how quickly can we replace them with the most brutal dictator we can find? Yeah. Um, and their their penchant, so we say, for um, <laughs> this is the CIA's and the Americans' penchant for uh, supporting the most brutal characters that you are likely to find, particularly in South and Central America. Yeah. Um, there are some other stories about 
Puerto Rico, is it? Or um, uh, Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the the support they were willing to show for. Yeah, uh, trio. The, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was one that just gets barely touched on, but it's just because they use the Dominican Republic as an opportunity to talk about uh, the, like, intellectuals who got got by the CIA. Sure, yeah, And, yeah. like, there was a guy who the dictator in the Dominican Republic didn't like, and so the CIA just, like, operating domestically put him on a plane and sent him yeah it was basically like the 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 way the cia sort of like you've got like the the high ups in the cia and then they sort of subcontract to um sort of mostly like ex-police and ex-fbi like private detective firms who then subcontract even lower down to just like street level thugs kind of thing or just straight up the mafia or just yeah or the mafia or or organized crime or whatever kind of thing so they basically use that as an excuse to talk about the the degrees of abstractness that the cia Mm. uses to um dissociate i suppose itself from the basically the political murders or abductions or what have you that it wants to orchestrate but uh, is unwilling to have its um have its hands too closely attached to yeah so yeah i suppose yeah i suppose you'd have to i did like the part where they were like hey let's get meyer lansky to kill castro and so they sent two (laughs) jewish cia members down and lansky was like i want a billion dollars or however much he said and they were like okay that's not gonna happen thank you anyways (laughs) um yeah dominican republic uh guatemala oh i suppose we should talk about uh the congo a bit um sure just because, like, yes, today Guatemala is completely exploited and it is put in a state of, again, just like imperialist semi-slavery, specifically by the United States. Um, Iran is complicated, as one might say, without trying to sound like how little they know about it. Um, uh, Dominican Republic, again, don't really know too much. Um, but again, any country really in the quote-unquote like glo- global south has it pretty rough because of this stuff. When we talk about the Congo, though, again, this is kind of like the difference between talking about, like, the French Revolution and the German Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. It's like, yeah, we all wanted a democratic power and we wanted a parliament. Yeah, we wanted to stop being slaves. In the Congo, to say nothing of the Belgian Congo, which is, like, one of the most brutal colonial um, apparatuses ever put into place, all to just get some rubber, which is kind of classic, um... When we talk about the Democratic Republic of the Congo today, you kind of have to talk about whole sections of the country which are run by foreign-backed war bands and militias that literally use slaves to get, like, all of the world's cobalt, which is basically, like, everything and a bunch of other precious minerals that we everybody needs to make anything electronic. Obviously, none of that wealth stays in the country. Mm-hmm. Most of these people that operate in these mines are just straight up slaves. Um, And so when we talk about what happened to Patrice Lumumba, that could have potentially been a turning point to even get to the point of being somewhere like, you know, Guatemala now, the Congo, it just makes the death of Patrice Lumumba so much more horrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you think of a country that was like cursed rather than blessed with Mm. rich mineral resources, it's the Congo. And Mm. between like... The period of Belgian uh, colonization and the sort of grotesque exploitation of its resources then, of like a six-month period with <laughs> the with a sort of democratic experiment, should we say? Yeah. And then um, what has become the rest of the 20th century, where basically they just discover one new mineral research, one resource, one new 
uh, metal deposit or a mm. sort of like this, like the, the uranium that were made up the the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki came from the Congo kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's just we'll find a new resource there and then we'll exploit the population of that country and extract it as brutally as possible. Yeah. Um, and then we'll find another one and just repeat it over and over and over again. Yeah. And again, Dan, what can you enlighten me? Was Patrice Lumumba a communist? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I mean, um, I mean, he's just, he's portrayed and described in this book similarly to uh, any of the other uh, sort mm. of like national liberation leaders um, that we come across in the book as just being simply that kind of thing, like a nationalist something mm. of a populist um someone who wanted to be done with col- col- just wants to be done with <laughs> colonial oppression kind exactly. of thing exactly and uh it could not stand mm. it could not stand mm. and i mean this the story is much the same as happened in iran and much the same as happened in um guatemala guatemala yeah uh um, perhaps much more dramatic <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> but it but it's it, yeah it is the same kind of like we Funnel resources, we funnel arms, we find a find a somebody to depose them, like a warlord or a dictator. Yeah. We we invest heavily in political opponents or what have you, and mm. uh, set the grounds for and basically order a coup. Right, that's basically yeah. what happens. Um, and when this when this stuff was invested, because like there was an investigation made of the CIA's activities in like 1975. I can't remember what the mm. particular commission is called. Church, I church think, commission, maybe. but sort of looked into these activities and the people that were directly involved were like the 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 CIA um the sort of in country CIA operatives kind yeah. of thing basically just denied outright that they really knew what was going on at all we mm. had nothing to do with it we weren't in the position to command or order anything we weren't directly involved it was just sort of internal political squabble kind mm. of between rival leaders kind of thing um but it subsequently emerged the way Talbot <laughs> tells it that that was totally a lie <laughs> That Patrice Lumumba's body was literally put in a literal in a CIA, CIA car. agent's car. <laughs> and, and the report is that he just drives around trying to work out what he's going to do with it. Yeah, Jesus fucking Christ. And again, I think we and get... You know, he was killed by... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's a, a horrendous story, right? Like, they... He's in. He is in president. The presidential compound, or under mm. house arrest, or something. So basically, the it's already lost. But mm. he is in a position of being protected, because he's protected by like uh, UN peacekeepers or what have you, or local police. So so he's relatively safe in in house arrest. Um, and the way Talbot kind of suggests is that like there is a fear because th- th- this is happening right at the end of the Eisenhower administration. So. Um, Mm. Uh, Patrice Lumumba like comes to power in the sort of like spring or early summer of 1960. Obviously, Kennedy is elected at the end in like November 1960, and although the coup has happened, which has overthrown him, he's not been disposed of, shall we say? Yeah. Like he's still under house arrest, or like he's still safe enough. People that... still like him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, people in the country still like him, right? <laughs> he still has a power base. He still has supporters, um, and the hope, basically all over the world, but particularly in country, but also um, amongst people in America, is that like the things that Kennedy has been saying that w- were very favorable toward these kind of national liberation leaders in Africa is leading people to believe that once Kennedy takes over the presidency, once he's inaugurated in like January of 1961, like there is a hope that 
Patrice Lumumba will be returned to the, I don't know whether he's president or prime minister mm. of uh, the Congo. Um, but Eisenhower has already, in, in, in another like sort of shockingly um, sort of concise, clear, um, I can't think the right word, like, he make by making no effort to hide their intentions, kind of thing. The the it, it, there's another account of when this these decisions are being made in the White House, and Eisenhower's just like, yeah, like, I don't know whether he says kill him specifically, but like yeah. dispose of him. Like we just yeah. we, we don't yeah, get rid of this guy. It's fine. Um, and there's another one of these situations where fifty percent of the room is aghast that like yeah, the commands to kill foreign leaders can be given so blithely by... Seemed a bit jaded by that point. Yeah, I mean, by that point in time, it's, I mean, like, um, yeah, he's a bit worn out. This is like that classic moment in Lord of the Rings, Dan. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> when, tongue, when Wormtongue is speaking oh. <laughs> into Theoden's ear and Gandalf has to that like, was John, yeah, 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 this is, yeah, this is John Foster Dulles. Speaking to Eisenhower. <laughs> and he's just gotten the part where he's like, I'm gone, Gandalf. I don't know who Gandalf is in that scenario. Nobody, I guess. Nobody was doing that at all. Yeah. If you say Kennedy, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> I am naive enough to say Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll talk about Kennedy in a minute. Uh, but anyway, basically, like, uh, Dulles and the CIA use this interim period over the Christmas, like, in the lame duck period of the Eisenhower administration before Kennedy comes in to basically order and orchestrate uh, mm. the killing of Patrice Lumumba. Mm. First, like, Talbot suggests that well, Patrice Lumumba makes this run for it, basically. He mm. escapes house arrest and is endeavouring to get to a part of the country which is still favourable to him. And the suggestion is made that how was he able to escape? Maybe yeah. he was allowed to escape. Yeah. And he ends up being pursued and eventually captured by... Um, Flees with his family. He, yeah, um, and eventually, like, he is... Uh, um, Passed from the custody of various like war bands and mm. uh, um, police factions or army factions kind of things, receiving beatings along the way, mm. and is eventually killed by people who are directly mm. directed, I suppose, controlled mm. by the CIA. So yeah. all of this gumph about we had nothing to do with it, we didn't know about it, kind it's of like, thing. You're literally there. you literally were the people that ordered <laughs> it, um, and then they didn't tell anybody for quite a long time. Like, mm. people didn't know. Like, the, the CIA were taking part in briefings in the White House with John F. Kennedy in the room, mm. carrying on, like, Patrice Lumumba is still alive and there is some possibility, what would it mean if he was returned to power? Yeah. And they knew for a while that he'd so, been killed, like, yeah. months before, kind of thing, or weeks before. So. Yeah, a couple details, too. It, very comically, they tried to kill him in a classic CIA oh, yeah. by poison <laughs> toothpaste. It's like... Oh my God, guys! Who were you con- like? What was it? Were you consulting with yeah. McKinsey? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, that's that's what it was. Somebody had observed that Patrice Lumumba had really white teeth, and we're like, yeah. "Well, he must brush his teeth a lot." So <laughs> the best way to get to him is clearly through his toothpaste. Clearly, yeah. but they decided it might be a bit obvious. They got paid three hundred trillion dollars <laughs> for that idea. Consultants, what are you going to yeah, Consultants, <laughs> and then just just because it's very heroic. Um, Lumumba, mm-hmm. as he's running away, he's getting caught up to by these basically just like paramilitary goombas who are trying to kill him. And he, there's, you know, it's I don't, who knows if this is true. If it is, it's gnarly. If it isn't, so what? Let's just make it true. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, there's 
one boat to get across this big river and these people are catching up to him and it's like a movie and it's like, we only have room for like Lumumba to go over and then we'll come back and get his family. Lumumba goes over and then as soon as the boat comes back, the paramilitary guys catch up to him and they like have his family and the people with Lumumba are like, dude, I'm sorry, but like we need to just go and get you out of here because this is important. And he says something along the lines of like, when you fight for something like this and you fight against something as evil as this, you have to expect a tragic end. And he goes back and supposedly before the commanders show up, he's able to like talk these paramilitary guys into being like, guys, what are you doing? Because these are people from the Congo. It's like, yeah, yeah, come yeah. on, what are you doing? Yeah. And supposedly they're like, they kind of listen to him. But then as soon as the commanders show up, it was done and they take him off and beat the shit out of him and kill him. Um, sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the end of that. And now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, not in the best of spots, yeah. perhaps. Um, yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. Very sad ending for Patrice Lumumba. Guy rocked, too. Guy was just so cool. I'd love to know more about him. Yeah, have we to should. Get into it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, too. We'll bring his name up now because it'll become important kind of later. Um, Francis Nkrumah, who I think that's how you say his name, who was, uh, I forget exactly where he was. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. A close country. Um, who was his really good friend and was also like this anti-colonial fellow. Like a mentor to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knew exactly what had happened, knew who did it, and he had some pretty good insights on another assassination that would take place later. Oh, we'll leave that for where uh-huh. for part three. Yeah. I mean, there were so many assassinations in the 60s. Which <laughs> one could we true. possibly be talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it was the one where they tried to kill Ford. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, a couple other things to talk about. This part of the book each chapter, even though it's the same thing, just gets progressively more insane. And then you get to the MK Ultra bits. Yeah. And there's not a whole lot to say about the MK Ultra stuff because, like, if you don't know, this is the CIA's supposed, like, mind control program, dude. I don't know. I got a couple of things to say about yeah, that. Yeah, this is another one where you're like, did people believe yeah. what they believed? Like, ostensibly, it was kind of in the zeitgeist of both America mm. and the defense yeah. sort of administration of the sort of like the military the complex was yeah. that like there are like uh, American soldiers captured by communists in Korea had been subjected to some kind of uh, mind, mind control, control Manchurian, candidate, Manchurian candidate thing going on which led them to admit to having dropped like I don't know like <laughs> bubonic plague and stuff on them <laughs> I don't know this was, this was basically like this idea that the communists had um, had mind control abilities was basically just to cover the, for the fact that some American soldiers seemed to have been captured, uh, pilots had been captured by uh, the North Koreans during the mm. Korean War and had been made Reprogrammed. to admit, ad- no, they'd just been made to admit through torture <laughs> the horrible things that they'd been doing, that exactly. they'd been dropping like anthrax or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then the only explanation for that is though clearly these people f- fell foul of evil communist mind control. And so. Um, it sort of slipped into the zeitgeist that oh my god we're losing out in the the mind control the mind control front of the cold war <laughs> and uh, we really the, the Americans really better catch up and I mean this that was a pro- this was a program that was ordered by Alan Dulles explicitly yeah. in the early fifties yeah but he'd also I think he'd also been sort of like laying the ground for works for it beforehand kind of thing um, yeah I don't know a great deal about it and it, it ends in a particularly peculiar place. I mean, here's the thing about well, it goes MK on for like 25 Ultra. years or whatever. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. You. But there you, are some other Dulleses involved. As well. <laughs> there are. So sad. Okay, you hear a lot of lefties talk. You know, 
people who like conspiracy theories uh-huh. to talk about MK Ultra as being like, dude, they got Sohan Sohan to kill Bobby Kennedy, dude, um, through mind control, bro. I, I take a much more boring view of this. We're like, Alan Dulles was one smart cookie, dude. He saw that he could create this fake news paranoia about, like, mind control. Which, okay, we should say first, right off the bat, Talbot comes across with all these different, like, uh, independent studies or whatever. Like, his historians going through trying to see, well, which communist countries did practice mind control on people? And it's like, none ever. <laughs> it's like, that literally never happened. Um... And he, Dulles kind of sees that he can start spreading this rumor, not only for the benefit of, like, the anti-communist defense industry, which, you know, we need more reasons to hate the communists, but also to open up a new front on that and to kind of be like, where else can we spread this money around? Where else can we just print money? Because that's what it's all about, right? This, like, permanent war economy is, like, what else, can, you know, like, robots? Sure. Uh, new planes? Sure. Mind control? Sure. Because, like, Talbot goes through and he talks all about, like, the different people who got money from this. And it's just, it's just like, it's some freaks. And it's just, like, people who were doing the stupidest shit trying to pretend like they were controlling people's minds. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I think that, like, what is called mind control is just, like, more or less just torture. It's just a legal way to check out torture because like some of the things that they were doing under mk ultra super conspiracy theory mind control stuff was just like oh give people uh uh 50 milliliters of acid and don't let them sleep for 50 days and they go crazy wow we control this guy's mind (laughs) it's just like oh my god (laughs) they managed to get 50 percent there they managed to break people down (laughs) yeah put anybody back together again yeah Mm. well and that was kind of part of it like they just wanted certain people to go insane one of those people was Alan Dulles' son, which is so sad. Like, Alan Dulles' son was just this, like, dude who kind of didn't really want to ever be like his dad, but was like, I guess I'll go to war because my dad's kind of trying to be a politician, even though he can't be a politician because he's too much of a non-Sigma male to win a goddamn election. So he just got into the CIA or whatever. He goes to uh, fight in Korea. He gets grievously head wounded. He gets a head wound. Wounded in the head? Wounded in the head, thank you. (laughs) And he comes back. He suffers a grievous head wound. He does. He does, from some shrapnel. And he comes back and is different. And Alan Dulles is like, damn, I wish someone would fix my kid because now my kid's out in the open telling me how much he hates me. Damn, I wish someone would do something about that. So he sends him to some sicko doctor who does some sicko shit to him, tortures him basically. I forget exactly what he does. If it was like shock therapy and like dosing him with acid or just like (laughs) some other crazy crap. Um, Contributes further to this guy's mental state being declined. And the chapter ends by basically him just being like, and he's still alive and he has no idea what happened to him in terms of just like trying to make sense of the past. Mm. And it's just so sad, dude. It's like, so anyway, the point of that is Alan Dulles will literally torture his son to get what he wants. Uh, Brutal. Really, really brutal. But anyway, the MK Ultra stuff, when they talk about where they were doing it, it was just like torturing supposed communists at black sites in Germany. And it was like, there were some weird things that like, whoa, maybe some people got carried away with the whole mind control stuff thinking they could do some crazy shit. At some point, Talbot says, some of the tests which were conducted in cities like San Francisco, (laughs) as well as rural areas in the Midwest, involved harmless chemicals. 
mm-hmm. look into the camera there. But others featured more dangerous toxins in Alaska, uh, where the two men, meaning Frank Olson and some other dude, uh, sought to stage their experiments in an environment which resembled wintertime Russia. Quote, we used a spore that was very similar to anthrax so the, to the extent that we did something that was not kosher. You can read that as they poisoned an entire village of people using anthrax. Um, one of the research colleagues, a bacteriologist named Dr. Harold Batchelor, learned aerial spray techniques from the infamous Dr. Kurt Blum, director of the Nazi uh, biological warfare program. Years later, a congressional uh, investigation found that the open-air experiments conducted by uh, those folks were quote-unquote appalling. So who knows what the hell that means, but I would assume if you have a literal Nazi scientist showing you how to, like, disperse biological weaponry in American soil, probably not good. Um, so yeah, MK Ultra, crazy enough without believing that they can control people's minds, is, I guess, mm-hmm. my point. Because that's just, like, don't buy into their I mean, shit. They can't I mean, they've that. got all these Nazis that they imported along the, the rat lines into America. What are they going to do with them? But like, yeah. use them to torture people. <laughs> exactly. Can I ask you, Dan? I don't know if you remember the number. Ballpark figure for me. How many Nazi scientists do you think America imported after the war? Ah, no, I don't think I actually read all of this chapter, so I don't know the number. So this is a you legitimate. Had to guess. Um, how about fifty? Sixteen hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Like, how did, how did they even have that many <laughs> scientists? That, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sicko mode, uh-huh. for But sure. it was that or let the Soviets get hold of them, so what are you going to do? Yeah, but I mean, Soviets probably would have just killed them. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what are you yeah, going to yeah. do? I mean, no, the other option was they were put on trial in Germany. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. Um, I think the thing that sums up that, the whole, basically this whole section... But certainly the MK Ultra stuff is. Oh, also side note: the guy Frank Olson who did all that heinous shit and who basically like kind of started to go insane because he realized that some of his inventions were being used in Korea to poison and basically like genocide the Korean population in North Korea bi- through biological weapons. Um, <laughs> he wound up getting invited after he started to have some second thoughts about things. He got invited down to go hang out Just with some CIA boys. Like, yeah, invited. <laughs> yeah, they're like, let's have a party, and I think it's classically. The CIA guy gave him a bottle of Cointreau and was just like, yo, go party. But he just dosed it with acid. Ten days later, he shows up uh, having jumped out of a window <laughs> and died because they were like, whoa, he like, went this crazy. Is like that guy in the first chapter that tried to climb out of the window of his exactly. mental cell and fell. Yeah. Um, Errol Morris actually did a movie about that guy, too. Oh, really? Which is very funny. Um, anyway, the, the bit that sums it up is that... Um, uh, some Nazi was basically just who worked for the CIA said we were in World War II mode at the time. The war never really ended for us, and that's it. It's just the permanent war economy. Uh, the last thing in this uh, section I think that's worth talking about, even just for a bit, is Reinhard Galen, uh-huh. um, who was nice Nazi number one, uh, one of the good ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, being very sarcastic here. Um, and he, I don't know, there's not much to say about this guy other than that he was, where the CIA just cooed people and murdered people and did genocide in the third world, in countries like Germany and in France, they set up people like ex-Nazi Reinhard Galen to have like paragovernmental apparatuses that would do CIA stuff in these countries for them. Mm-hmm. And so he was basically just like... He was like apparently a pretty bad dude on the Eastern Front, and somehow didn't get prosecuted. For yeah, that yeah, yeah. He was integral on the sort of like the the, the Nazi push, yeah, you know, on the Eastern Front, and um, 
directly responsible for drawing up death lists, basically, yeah. of like uh, members of the Jewish population of those countries in Eastern Europe that they went through. So he was, yeah, responsible for de- directly sending people to death camps, basically. Yeah. Um, another person who, by absolutely all rights, ought to have been on trial at Nuremberg, yeah. um, but managed to. Um, what was the story? He he took a load of like documents and buried them in the mountains in like Bavaria <laughs> or something, because basically he he'd become like like a spy chief in Nazi Germany, mm. and then also was like, okay, I have the skill set here, and also I have all this information if I bury it and protect it long <laughs> enough to sell it to the Americans and prove my worth to the Americans, kind of thing. Mm. Um, and one of the people who saw a huge amount of appeal in bringing Reinhard Galen into the fold of the sort of like. Uh, Western uh, intelligence establishment was Alan Dulles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Funnily enough, and fa- no famous qualms. friend of friend of Nazis, yeah. Alan Dulles. Friend of Nazis. Uh, Don't put yeah, that on my tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he, this guy basically. There's a whole lot more to say about um, this specific bit of it, but uh, they're basically a set of plans all around Europe to create these little apparatuses to stop communism, socialism, progressives, French people in general from doing anything like, you know, nominally to the left of what what this like security establishment wanted. Um, you hear a lot about this in the conspiracy theory fringes of the left, which is Operation Gladio. Um, and for good reasons, it's just it's some of the shit that this broader Europe-wide apparatus of these stay-behind networks did was insane. To the point they bought up the like Masonic lodges that ran Italy for quite some time that Berlusconi was a part of. I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, of course. Um, but yeah, g- anyway, Galen was just a very uh, key figure in all of this, especially in Germany. Dan, what did you make of the bit <laughs> about that guy Otto John? That blew my mind. Do you remember that bit? No. So this is when... Uh, the kind of like head of the West German security apparatus was like, oh god, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was like, hey, are you sure we should have this Nazi in a position of power like this? And Reinhard Gaiden was like, I'm gonna fix this dude's wagon, and it's very unclear from this book what exactly happened, yeah. but supposedly he showed up, he defected to East Germany out of the blue, said communism's good, we love communism. And then showed up back Somehow in West Germany, in West Germany and Reinhard Galen was like, traitor, what yeah. did I tell you? Also, Reinhard Galen famously said, once a traitor, always a traitor, in reference to Otto John being part of the Valkyrie plot to try and kill Hitler. Yeah. So by saying once a traitor, always a traitor, he said, damn, once against the Nazis, always against the Nazis. Classic, yeah. am I right? But like, that was very, anyway, Otto John goes to prison in West Germany because they're like, oh, he's a communist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the whole time, he's like, I literally I, have I no idea drunk, what happened. Yeah. Well, that was more plausible. Like, he defected <laughs> and then undefected or he was drugged and sent over the border and then brought back yeah and no one in east germany was like yeah he's one of ours they're all like who who yeah, yeah, <laughs> this yeah, guy yeah, 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 yeah. very yeah odd. i mean one of the things to say and sort of like to characterize reinhardt galen i suppose is one of these people who he was always kind of like lukewarm toward an alliance with america but really wanted to re-establish German power in a lot of ways, just mm. like reestablish the Nazi regime or at least the Nazi establishment kind of thing. Um, one of the more interesting parts, parts of that history, as it's given to us, is that as soon as it seems to be apparent that the Social Democrats might actually win an election mm. in uh, Germany, 
he's obviously very fearful for his own safety. He's like, oh God, they're going to come for me and put me on trial. <laughs> Understandable. So he's immediately just like, well, we're just going to have to organise a coup. <laughs> we're just going to have to walk through this government and get rid of them yeah. and, and ba- basically what he does is he proposes this to the American security establishment and they're very close to like well it never really gets to that point um, but the the Dulleses are totally on board with cooing the German government at mm. one point and instituting a um, uh, dictatorship a friendlier government a friendlier government just like they did in the Congo yeah. and Guatemala and Iran, yeah. um, so they weren't too, they weren't desperately afraid of using these same tactics in in uh, Central and Western Europe. Yeah, I wonder to what extent anything like that happened in England, or it just didn't need to. MI6 was like, we got it, don't worry about it. Mm. Trade unions. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't like there 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 is this idea that there were there was a there was a very tentative coup plot. Hmm. Uh, I think in the mid seventies, they were thinking really? of cooing Harold Wilson. Basically. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, yeah. I don't think it was in. I mean, it, this is this is kind of like um, sort of establishment and power elite figures. Mm. I think one of the I, I, I don't know allegedly <laughs> one of the people involved was the person who was the editor of the Daily Mail at the time, really? and some other people involved in like the in in certain echelons of the mm. the royal family and that kind of thing. It didn't get very far. Mm. It wasn't like we were on the brink of military coup. But but yeah, the, the, the mm. idea was floated seriously in certain circles. We're going to coup Harold Wilson. Mm. Interesting. Um, I'm just going to look up. I, there's something that I would like to solve. And you said when something weird happens, there's a chance that the CIA was involved. I would just like to know, Dan, what happened to Harold Holt? Because I don't think anybody's ever sorted that out. He was the prime minister of Australia, and he just was just, he went to the beach one day and went swimming and just disappeared. Just like, what happened to that guy? You don't let the prime minister go swimming and just have him disappear. Um, anyway, we'll we'll solve that uh, down the line. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll get to that question. Because that's a, that's a thing where a lot of people in Australia are like, yeah, what did happen to that guy? What, he drowned? Are you kidding me? Give me a break. There was a different Australian prime minister. I forget who it was but who was like, yeah, we're probably not going to send any troops to Vietnam. And then literally some CIA guys came over and went, step down. And he was like, okay. They stepped down and then they sent uh, troops to, uh, to Vietnam. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, all right. I think perhaps we should save our discussions on Kennedy oh, and the time. like, yeah, and the like myth around Kennedy is the last of the good ones. Mm, mm. Podcast does not disclose to... that or not uh, <laughs> support that statement. Um. I just want to say that I've been left relatively endeared toward one Fidel Castro from... Oh, 100%. (laughs) Hell yeah, dude. After reading this, that's one thing. Real quick, let's just tell the story about Castro's two trips to America. Uh One where everyone was like, is this guy a communist or is he not? We don't really know what this guy's going to be like. And he showed up to America immediately after that and everyone was like, Castro, all right. Hell yeah, stay at the good hotel, buddy. And then when he left and came back and was like, I'm a communist, when he came back, um, they somebody said in New York where he went, no hotels. Yeah, they, they, the they were going to move into a hotel and then there was a bomb threat yeah. place to get to that hotel and the hotel was like, okay, you're going to have to play a security deposit of like $20,000 yeah. and Castro was like, well, the <laughs> government hasn't got that money. Kind of <laughs> well, no. I'm going to pitch, te- we're going to pitch tents outside the UN. That was basically his last At rocks. <laughs> and then the coolest thing ever happened, which is he went uptown, baby. I think it's uptown. I don't know anything about New York. He went to Harlem um, historically black neighborhood, at least back then, and uh, uh, went to a hotel 
that would let him in, which is like the only hotel in the entire city that would let him in. And there he kind of gave a speech about like historically black neighborhood. You guys have been oppressed by the same people who have been oppressing my country. Solidarity. We're all cool. Thanks for letting me sleep here. Anyway, Malcolm X shows up and is just like, goes to meet with him. And apparently they have like a very brief conversation. But the, the best quote of all time is that Malcolm X leaves. And then some reporter is like, what did you think of Castro? And he says, he's the only white man I ever liked. <laughs> it's just like, right on. Okay. Very, very cool. Fair play, fair Would have play. loved to have been a fly on the wall in that room. <laughs> when Castro was like, would you like a cigar? <laughs> My f- favorite quote about Castro was not as good as that one. <laughs> But it's when he goes to the zoo and alarms all the zookeepers by petting a tiger through the cage. That's thing. so And then cool. he says to the tiger, it's like a jail. Uh, don't worry, I understand. I've been in prison too. <laughs> That's so goddamn cool. In uh, Cuba, tigers run the streets. Yeah, they allow yeah, them yeah, yeah. to run around. A communist society, tigers may roam the streets. Yeah. Whew. Wipes yeah. the sweat from my brow. <laughs> that one. Um... Yeah, Jack, Jack's like heartbeat is not gotten too. <laughs> I mean, we should we should have put a heartbeat monitor on Jack through this podcast. I yeah. think. <laughs> I think this one was just more sad when we get. Yeah, yeah. If yeah, we yeah, ever yeah, get yeah. to the third part of this book, heartbeat yeah. going up. This yeah, one yeah, was yeah. just like, yeah, 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 just yeah. brutal, yeah. dude. Because yeah. this is the world that we have now. You know, yeah, the uh, the Americas and the Western Europe's, and the Japan and the Australia and everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're either living with the legacy of these things, or we're seeding new mm. interventions like this, which are causing mo- new multiple decades of tragedy. Kind of whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that Libya's oil industry isn't still nationalized? <laughs> Hang on, Dan. I don't know about that. Um, yeah. And again, we talked about this in the first episode that we did on this, but this is the shit that just should just piss you off to no, to no end. Um, this is the stuff that you can tell anyone, and they'll be like, oh, well, the communists were the ones protecting these people and trying to be like, what's it, egg, dude? Come on. <laughs> Come, on. <laughs> Come on, man. Um, this is some good entry-level stuff. If you're just hanging out at, at where you work uh, and you want to convince the chud next to you to be like, eh, maybe read a little bit of history. This stuff is so like, I hate to say fascinating, but like it is. And it's so just like on the edge of sounding conspiratorial, but like, damn, it's true what they did in Guatemala. Like, you can get you can get a lot of people to listen to you like this yeah, instead yeah. of just being like, "Have you heard of surplus value?" Yeah. <laughs> get to that afterwards. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. MCM Prime. Yes. Yes. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> and as the uh, uh, we stand in full solidarity with the two day government in exile. Yeah. <laughs> such as it exists. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to the third part of this book. It's the last part. Um, it takes a pretty drastic turn. Mm. Um, we might have to do it in a few parts. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, pick up this book just because it's fun. I don't know. Ad. Yeah. Sponsored by David Talbot. Do you know anything about Salon.com? No. Me neither. That's his website, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I've heard of it. I've heard of it as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Probably we some lip shit. Yeah. 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 Worth reiterating the same disclaimer as last time. <laughs> David Talbot, like, not a communist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lib. <laughs> um, all right. Good book. Good book, folks. We'll get back to the good stuff. What episode is this? 37. 37? 37. There we go. I know my stuff. Well done. Um, Maybe we'll do some fundamental principles next week yes speaking of (laughs) third parts that need to get done hell yeah um all right 
this charade has gone on long <laughs> enough, Dan. If you have nothing else to say. Put us out of our say, misery, please. Put us out of our misery. If you have nothing else to say, take us out. I've been Jack. Goodbye. You, you've been listening to Auxiliary Statements Live, Baby Dom. Thanks for listening. <laughs>